Open your Bible to the book of Isaiah. We're going to be primarily in Isaiah chapter 9. We're in this season of Advent, which is a time in our calendar year where we join in on what the church has set aside for centuries leading up to Christmas, celebrating the arrival of Jesus. And we focus our minds on what we have in Jesus and his arriving. And historically, the church has also used this season to look forward to the second coming of Jesus, to uh, the day when he returns, when all things are ultimately made new again. So Advent is a celebration of the arrival of Jesus, and it's this waiting for another arrival of Jesus what brings the culmination and the restoration of all things. So that's the mode and the mindset that we are in as we look at Isaiah chapter 9 this morning. Christmas time at our house is a lot of fun. We've got three young kids. Um, and one of the reasons that it's fun is because we watch Christmas movies. I don't know how many of you have already started in that, but that's kind of a little tradition that we have as we try to watch Christmas uh, movies with our kids. And it's kind of fun for Lauren and I because we've seen all these movies, um, but our kids have not. They're just now kind of discovering them. So when my wife is watching White Christmas with the girls, you know, they don't know that the lodge is going to be saved, but my wife does. And so she kind of watches them kind of like live through it when they're watching Home Alone with me. They don't know that Kevin is not abandoned forever. They don't know that John Candy and the Kenosha Kickers, who are very big in Sheboygan, are going to come to the rescue and, and help out. So it's kind of fun for me as I'm watching this with my kids because I get to kind of watch them discover it for the very first time. And uh, this is actually kind of a fun thing for us in our house, not just in Christmas, but like really kind of all through the year, we will try to introduce um, our kids to these 80s movies that we kind of grew up with. And uh, we know how they all end, but they don't. So it's fun to kind of watch them again, kind of discover for the very first time and to watch them kind of emote their way through it. And it's, it's actually not just my kids, it's um, my wife in some ways too. So a few summers ago, um, I found out that my wife had never seen any of the Rocky movies. Um, and as a proud Sicilian man, I needed to fix that right away. So on our summer vacation, um, we got all the Rockies, and that's what we did every night. So I know a lot of couples that are intellectual and maybe some more sophisticated, you'll go through like a good book or watch a documentary together, but not us. We were yo adrian the whole like time through our summer vacation, and it was really, really great kind of you know, trying to explain Rocky, not trying to explain what Sylvester Stallone was saying, but like trying to explain like Rocky to my wife. And I remember when we got to Rocky Four, Rocky Four with Ivan Drago in the, in the awful Russians. So a lot has changed since the 80s. Um, but so, and, and, he, and Rocky's getting pummeled and my, you know, my wife's like chewing on the blanket. Like what's gonna happen? Because we've already seen Rocky lose before. He can lose. So, but what's gonna, what's gonna happen? And there's this drama in it. Like what, how does this all turn out? And in Isaiah chapter nine, the text that we're gonna look at this morning, it kind of has that type of drama to it. Let's pray, um, and then we'll ask God to help us with our text this morning. Father in heaven, we love you, and God, I'm so thankful for this season because it does, uh, even in the midst of all the craziness and chaos and busyness, God, it does allow us to slow down and to really remember what we have in your son, Jesus. And what a big deal it actually is and was when 400 years of silence was broken with the cry of a baby. 
a baby who would be king, a baby who would live the perfect life that we could never live, a baby who would die the death that was due us, a baby that you would raise from the dead. And so, Jesus, we, uh, we need you right now in this moment. And so by the power of your spirit, would you just calm us down, settle us down, help us to focus in, do the things that only you can do, God, illuminate the scripture, speak to us, encourage, convict, draw us closer to yourself, stir up affection for you. God, we need you. God, we want you. Jesus, we love you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. So Isaiah is a prophet, which means that he's a mouthpiece for God. He speaks for God, and God speaks to him, and he speaks to the people. And right now, he's looking at the people of God, the nation of Israel, and they are a huge mess. The nation at this time, when Isaiah is writing, is actually split into two. And the king of the northern kingdom, what he's done is he's partnered with Assyria, which is bad news. And now the Assyrian kingdom that was supposed to help the nation of Israel actually fight against their enemies, the nation, the Assyrians are coming to overthrow them. And so their sinful decision, this evil decision to partner with the Assyrians has massively destructive consequences. And the Assyrian kingdom is bearing down on them. And they're about to come and wipe out these people. And Isaiah, who writes this passage about 725 BC, he details all of this happening. And in the middle of them anticipating this and them like kind of seeing this on the horizon, they're being afraid of what's coming at them. Isaiah, this mouthpiece of God, this prophet, he looks at them and he says, look, this is bad, but there is hope. There's hope. There's hope if you'll just look for it. There is, there is hope in the middle of what is broken, in the middle of chaos and calamity. There is hope if you have eyes to see it. Now, when the Bible talks about hope, it talks about it usually in two different ways. One is about our act of hoping, but the other, and the, and the, and the more kind of robust way that the Bible talks about hope, is about the objective content of your hope what we're hoping in. And there's a, there's a good definition. I've heard a pastor use this before. and say that hope is the confident expectation of a desired outcome. It's the confident expectation of a desired outcome. And that is the content of Christian hope. I want to give you some passages. I think we'll put this text up on the screen. So you can just kind of write the addresses down and then you can go back and look at these verses. But when we talk about, well, what is the content of Christian hope? I want to give you a few things that the Bible gives us to describe the content of our Christian hope. What's the basis for the hope that we have as followers of Jesus? The first is the hope of our salvation. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 8 through 10, Paul says this, But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, putting on faith and love as a breastplate, and the hope of salvation as a helmet. For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. He died for us so that, whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together with him. Therefore, Paul says, encourage one another and build each other up just as, in fact, you are doing. Hope from the wrath of God. Our biggest problem is not low self-esteem. Our biggest problem is that God hates evil in the world just like you and I do. We hate injustice. 
But when we look at ourselves, we realize very quickly, I'm not really in a good place either. I hate the evil that's out there, but that exists in me as well too. And the good news is that we can be rescued from the wrath of God. That's our hope, that condemnation is not the end for us, but redemption and reconciliation for God. So the content of our hope is salvation. The content of our hope, our hope is in righteousness, Galatians 5.5. 5. Again, the Apostle Paul writes this, For through the Spirit we eagerly await by faith the righteousness for which we hope. Righteousness means right standing with God. I'm set right with God. Because of the finished work of Jesus, God forgives me so that when I see God face to face, I won't be annihilated because of my sin, because of my rebellion. Jesus paid a debt that I owe because of my rebellion, and I have hope that I am rescued from wrath because I'm right with God because of Jesus, not any works of my own, lest I should boast or brag about that. So I have the hope of righteousness. I have the hope of resurrection. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, Paul says, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Now, now, is Paul just this like wild optimist that like disconnected from reality? No, I would say that Paul is a ruthless realist. And Paul knows the realest thing in the world is the resurrection of Jesus Christ because he saw him. So that's why he says, always give yourself fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. What Paul is saying here is, look, our bodies, these earth suits that we have, they're breaking down. They're broken and they're getting worse. My, My kids have started to play soccer. So at night, we'll go out to this field by our house. We'll start to kick soccer ball around. And it was super cold on Friday night, or cold for me anyway. And I was telling my wife, I was like, you know what? I think I can actually, like, I think my, I got an artificial hip. I was like, I think my hip, like, I think it's cold. I think I can feel it like it's maybe not. Maybe I was just cold all over, but I was like, I think I think the cold's actually bothering me. Why? Because this is perishing. This is falling apart. We realize that something is wrong with our bodies. They're breaking down. But the Bible tells us that the worst of us will be buried in the ground and the best of us will rise with him. Romans 8, Paul talks about this. He says, creation is subject to frustration, but in hope that one day the redemption of sons and daughters of God will be set free and we will be who we're meant to be in God. So we have a hope of resurrection as the content or the basis of our hope. There's the hope of life, Titus 1.1. Paul, a servant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to further the faith of God's elect in their knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness in the hope of eternal life. Now, if you think... That Christians, if, if you're not a believer, you're not a Christian, you're not a church person, not a Bible person, you think like Christians are just kind of, they're a little bit kooky. Well, we are because we believe we will live forever with God. We hope that, confident expectation in that outcome. 
in the hope of eternal life, which God, who does not lie, promised before the beginning of time, and which now it is appointed season, he has brought to light through the preaching entrusted to me by the command of our God Savior. Paul is saying, we hope that we will have life beyond the grave. And then lastly, we have the hope of glory. Romans 5 says this, therefore, since we've been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into his grace, in which we now stand, and we boast in what? In what we've done? No. And that we finally figured it out, that we got the right answer, that we go to the right church? No. We hope in the glory of God. Not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings. This is crazy talk, Paul, because we know that suffering produces perseverance, and perseverance, character, and character, what? Hope. And hope does not put us to shame, Because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So those things there, that's the content of our hope. That I'll be saved. That I'll be righteous. That I'll be set right. That I'll be resurrected. That I'll be given eternal life. That I'll obtain glory. Meaning that I'll be who I was always meant to be fully alive in God because of Jesus. First Peter would say that you've been born again to a living hope. This is the content of Christian hope. So it has at its foundation, at its basis, not just this naive optimism. It has as a solid foundation life with God. And you say, well, how do you know that's true? The Bible tells us that God never lies. Hebrews says that God makes an oath against himself. We have a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus, and we are so confident that death will not be the end of our story because it was not the end of his. And the Bible says that we share in the inheritance, so what he has, we get. We will rise again. Paul tells us in Corinthians that we share in that inheritance out of darkness into the kingdom. So when we talk about hope as Christians and we celebrate that during Advent, I, I just don't want to rush into a sermon on hope without giving you the, the weight of it. Tim last week talked about the glory, the weightiness. There's a glory to this hope that we have in Christ. Okay, Isaiah 9. I've had you there for a while. Isaiah 9. Verse 1, and I'm going to read um, to verse 6. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who were in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and in the land of Naphtali, but in the future, he will honor Galilee of the nations by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. Verse 3, you have enlarged the nation, increased their joy, and re- they rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you've shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. And this is the verse we always hear at Christmas, right? For to us, a child is born. And to us, a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And verse 7 says, of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. So about 700 years before the birth of Jesus, Isaiah says this to a people who are about to be destroyed. Remember, the Assyrians are bearing down on them to wipe them off the planet. 
Now, the interesting thing with language here in this passage is that Isaiah, he's writing it in a pretty strong way. All these texts here, they're written in the perfect tense. So it's not in a conditional sense. So Isaiah's writing in a way uh, where, where, where he believes that it's about something that will actually happen. And, and what he's saying here, the way that he's writing it is he's saying it is happening and it will happen. He's not writing it conditionally, meaning like, well, if you guys will do this, then this will happen. It's written differently than that. He's saying this is happening and it will happen. It's already not yet. And what it effectively tries to translate is this exhortation that says, let that truth guide your vision, guide where your focus is and your thinking and your heart beyond what's just in front of you. And Isaiah says, I want you to see it because it's happening and it will happen. And this, this passage is full of this kind of contrast that's related to that. In verse 1, you see bad news that turns into rejoicing in verse 3. The oppression in verse 1 turns into a broken yoke in verse 3. The darkness of verse 2 turns into light. The shadow of death is, in verse 2 is overcome by the reality that we see in verse 6. This is what I love about the scriptures is that they are rooted in reality. They don't paint some kind of world out there or some kind of life experience that we're totally unattached to. The Bible does exist in a, in a world that's not realistic where everything just kind of goes great. If you look at the Bible and you study it, you're going to see these different characters that encounter real pain, that have real massive failures, and real suffering. The Bible paints reality as it is. A few weeks ago, I had the opportunity to go uh, on our 710 retreat. 710 is our community of young adults and college students, and we did a retreat up in Williams, and um, for a couple days, I I taught through the story of Nehemiah, and if you're not familiar with Nehemiah, uh, Nehemiah is, uh, he's born in captivity. He's a cupbearer to the Assyrian king, and he gets word that his people, their, their hometown, Jerusalem, is in shambles, particularly the wall, and so Nehemiah Nehemiah weeps over this. Um, he, he confesses the, his sin and the sin of his people and the, and the sin of his forefathers. Um, and he humbles himself and he petitions the king, can I go and can I rebuild this wall? And the king, by the grace of God, allows Nehemiah to go and he rallies the people and they begin this building project and they come under adversity from people who scoff at him and try to detract him and try to distract him. But the building project comes through and Nehemiah and his people, they build this wall and they have this massive worship ceremony and they have this huge moment of corporate confession. They look back at the history of their people and they say, well, our people have sinned against you, God. You've been so faithful. I mean, if you read Nehemiah, they go all the way back to the Garden of Eden and they work through the history of their people and think, we've sinned against you. We've broken the law. We've broken the covenant. We'll never do it again. We'll never do it again. They have this massive, massive part Party. They dedicate this wall. Nehemiah goes away, leaves them. They've rebuilt the wall. And then he gets word like, uh, all the things that the people said that they would do, guess what? They're doing them again. They said that they wouldn't let their kids marry foreigners. They're, they're doing it. They, they wouldn't lose sight of the law. They've lost sight of the law. All, all of these things. And so as Nehemiah ends, Nehemiah chapter 13 is a huge bummer. 
because Nehemiah runs into town and he sees all these people doing all the things they said they'd never do. And at the very, very end of it, it just kind of ends with Nehemiah saying, God, I tried. And it's like this... But I said, you know what I love about Nehemiah? Is that's my experience in life. Is that yours? I've, I've had moments, I've had these just zenith moments with God. And I look back at the things, the mess I made, the poor decisions that I made, the rebellion against God's law, and I was like, God, I can't believe I was that foolish. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for your grace. I'm never going to do that again. I'm never going to talk to my wife like that again. I'm never going to have that ill will or that feeling towards that person again. I'm never going to do that thing again. And guess what? I did it again. The Bible is realistic. It shows us that this is the real world. The Bible was not written to tell us that we won't have suffering or pain in this world. And if you follow God, in fact, it tells the people of God, you're probably going to have more. Because life with God, if you really want to live out what God has for you and the way he's designed your life to live, it probably means that you're going to be working against the systems of the world, that you're going to be going against the grain of the, of the, of the world. And, and in fact, it might even be harder for you than what normal people experience. The people who are just trying to avoid all the pain and difficult situations in the world, the people that are trying to manage it in different ways. It's going to be more difficult for you. And yet the promise of the Bible, which is found here and everywhere, is that in the midst of those things, there's a peace of God, the grace of God that's available to you. You will be offered hope even if your circumstances don't change because you have a different kind of life with God. And because like when I watch these movies with my kids or I watch all these movies that I've seen before, I, I know how it ends up. You know that this isn't the end of the story. We know that God wins. Tim Keller is a pastor and an author. He says, everything that is sad comes untrue. Isaiah is like someone who's seen the end of the movie and he's looking at the people of God. He's saying, there's a hope that's beyond this. Yes, the enemy is bearing down. Yes, destruction seems imminent and chaos seems imminent. But he's saying there's a hope beyond this. There's a hope that you can experience even in the midst of it. And it's sprinkled in and around, but you have to fix your eyes towards it. You have to look for it. You have to go against your natural tendencies and your natural leanings of shame and fear and worry and bitterness and anger and wrestling. And you have to see hope because it's there and it's happening and it will come to pass no matter what. And Isaiah is saying it's hope. Just look towards it. In the book of Matthew, Matthew actually picks up on this theme in Matthew chapter 4. He's talking about Jesus. He says Jesus heard that John had been put in prison. John, this is John the Baptist He's a cousin of Jesus. He's the forerunner for Jesus. He was the one who was saying, prepare because the Messiah is here. He's coming. Jesus has a great affinity and love for John the Baptist. And John is in prison here. And spoiler alert, John will be murdered. And Jesus knows this. And so he leaves Nazareth. He went and he lived in Capernaum, which was by the lake in the area of Zebulun and Naphtali, those Words should be familiar. We just looked at them in Isaiah. To fulfill what was said through the prophet Isaiah, the land of Zebulun and land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people living in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. 
From that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. What's, what's tricky about the Bible is that New Testament writers, they write things in the scripture and they often refer to other scriptures. They're living with this assumption that you kind of already know everything that's going on. They're, they're writing with the understanding that you know something about what they're referencing. So last week, if you were here, when Tim started his message, he started his message by singing like the first part of a Christmas carol because he was working with the assumption that you know that Christmas carol and you knew the second verse, which you did. So bravo for you. The Old Testament and New Testament writers assume that you're carrying the Bible around in your mind and in your head and in your heart. So when they refer to passages like Matthew does here, they're thinking, oh, you know how this fits in the whole story. So when Isaiah 9 is quoted in Matthew 4, he's also quoting to you the rest of the passage, the passage that sticks out, that verse 6, for unto us a son, a child is given, a son is born. Now, here's the, a good theological thought that's kind of laid out here. What Isaiah does here theologically is very important. It's really important for what we think about God. There are words that denote humanity and divinity joined together. So when Isaiah is describing Jesus, he's saying this. He's wonderful, which emphasizes his deity. Counselor emphasizes humanity, our need for counsel. Mighty emphasizes humanity. God emphasizes deity. Everlasting emphasizes deity. Father emphasizes humanity. Prince emphasizes humanity. Peace emphasizes deity. And in each of these descriptions of, of Jesus, Isaiah, who's writing this 700 years before Jesus, that all these things are going to come together, deity and humanity, humanity and deity, hope is found. Now again, Hope, the way that we typically think about it, the way that culture presents it, is thin and kind of flimsy. The hope that culture usually presents uh, is that the stuff around us is going to be different. Uh, And this year in particular, we've really hoped for circumstances to change. We hope that somebody will make it better. We, we hope that the calendar just kind of flipping over in January will fix a lot of things. What the scriptures teach us in the message of Isaiah is that the hope that you seek is not in a change of circumstances, but the hope that you seek is a person named Jesus. And this truth is so powerful because the Bible is making the argument that it doesn't matter the circumstances You can always hope in the person named Jesus, and your hope is not in some faraway God who just throws edicts at you and just tells you, like, live your life this way, don't live it that way. No, in Jesus, in an Advent, remember this, we have God who has come near, who is with us, Emmanuel, God with us, who's actually in us, who actually knows us. And who knows when you've suffered or failed or feared or felt rejected or alone, he knows The thing that's so different about Christianity and Jesus in particular is that he stands over every world religion system philosophy because there is no other religion that claims that God knows, meaning that God is intimately acquainted with you, that cares in such a deep way for you, that in every way you've ever suffered, he knows it. In any way you've ever experienced loss, he knows. In any way that you've experienced pain in your body, the person of Jesus was physically tortured, physically suffocated. And the New Testament writers tell us page after page, you can come to God differently because he's with us. 
And it changes everything because it means that hope is found in him because he's shown us a way through. Anyone here need counsel on something going on in your life? You have something going on in your life. You have no way how to navigate it. You're completely stuck. I do. It's found in Jesus, the wonderful counselor. Anyone need strength? You might know the right thing to do, but you lack the strength to actually do it and to live it out consistently. Jesus is almighty God gives you power. How about a father that can love you and that can care for you in the midst of this crazy year? How about everlasting father? Anybody here or online need peace? Something that transcends you that could give you rest on the inside? Not the kind of peace that comes because everything is just kind of worked out because that doesn't exist. That's not reality. But a peace from the inside. Peace that comes, that works in the midst of what's wrong, that what is broken. So that even if nothing changes, in fact, even if it gets worse, we still have peace because we found it in Jesus, the Prince of Peace. And this is the hope of Christmas. This is what is real in the midst of chaos and, and brokenness. And this is not just for us to hear huddled together in this room or at home around our screens. As Christians, this is the hope that we share with the world. Okay, well, how do we do that? I want to close with this. How do we share this hope that we have? Because the Apostle Paul actually gives us this link between hope and love. And if you get one, you get the other. Because we can be a more hope-filled, loving people. And I want to close with this real quickly. In Colossians chapter 1, listen to what the Apostle Paul says. He says, We always thank God, the Father, our Lord Jesus Christ, and we pray for you because we've heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and that the love you have for all God's people, the faith and love that spring flow from the hope stored up for you in heaven and about which you've already heard in the true message of the gospel that has come to you in the same way the gospel is bearing fruit and growing throughout the whole world just as it has been doing among you since the day you heard it and truly understood God's grace. You learn it from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant who is a faithful minister of Christ on our behalf and who told us of your love in the Spirit. So Paul, he hears this great report about this church. He hears about their faith, their hope, and their love. And he says, man, I am super happy because I am, I'm, I'm, I'm hearing about your confidence your faith in God. I love that. And I hear that that faith, that confidence in God is actually expressing itself. It's actually being worked out in real love for others. That's amazing, Paul says. And then he says, you have that faith, you have that confidence, and you're showing that love, that sacrificial giving of yourself for the good of another because of your hope. And Paul says, hope is the cause or the basis of your faith and your love. He's saying faith and love are dependent on hope. It's the spring for which those things flow out of. Because when you have hope in your heart, it becomes a fountain of love for you and for those around you. The hope that you have in Jesus can make you an agent of love to the world because hope liberates you and me from self-absorption. When I have hope, like the kind of hope that is found in the person of Jesus, it frees me from being self-absorbed. This is what they teach you when, an air, when you're on an airplane, Right? When you know that you're okay, you can help others. 
When, the, when, when things get crazy and the mask comes down, you put the mask on yourself first. You know you're okay, then you help your freaked out kid next to you. When I have hope, when I know I'm okay, it frees me up to help others. Confidence in God creates charity. Confidence in who I am in God and who God is to me and that God is sovereign over everything, it creates in me the freedom to show charity. There are two paths in our culture today. There's two predominant paths in our culture today. The first one is this. It starts with fear and it starts with anxiety. Fear of an uncertain future. Fear that the world is going in a way where I won't be okay. And that creates anxiety. Anxiety is a motivational energy and it usually motivates anger. Anger is I'm mad at you for making me worry about my uncertain future. I'm mad at you for making me worry that my job is going away or that my health care is going to get threatened or my tax breaks might get threatened or my security or my stuff or my, right, my rights. I'm angry at you. And because I'm angry, because you've made me uncertain about my future, I'm going to attack you. And this is a well-worn path in our culture. And you can go that way. Or you can have hope. I have a certain future. No matter what happens, Bible says the mountains could crumble into the sea. God has me and loves me and is for me. And I might go through light and momentary affliction or suffering, but I have a living hope that one day I will see face to face. And that hope produces faith. That hope produces confidence, the assurance of things hoped for, and the obedience becomes love. And so I'm not going to freak out about my personal safety. I'm not going to freak out about my personal preferences. I'm not going to freak out about my personal comfort or security. Because if I do that, then I have limited bandwidth to care for you. If I spend all kinds of energy doing that, then I won't have any left over to love you. I'm going to be filled with faith, filled with hope, and love others. Which track? Which track are you going to choose to end 2020? You might be like me, and you might say, man, I've been on that anxiety track all year. <laughs> today is a day you can start fresh. You can switch tracks today. Advent is a reminder that hope has come and that hope has a name, and his name is Jesus. And, and because of him, I don't have to react. I don't have to live like those who don't have hope, who don't have Jesus. In fact, I can live a life of love like he actually did. What if we ended 2020 like that? Let's pray and ask God to help us with that. Father in heaven, thank you for your word this morning. God, thank you for your presence here. God, thank you for the truth of what we see in the person of Jesus that our greatest fear, this fear of death, has been completely conquered, the cross of Christ and seen in the power of his resurrection. And God, because of that, because of that, we have hope today. And so God, when the world is in chaos and when the world is in calamity and when the world is losing its mind and looking for all these other ways to cope and to deal with it, God, things that are temporal and flimsy, God, we don't have to go that way. And I thank you today that hope is provided in the person of Jesus. So God, give us um, the ability to see that, 
and give us the ability, God, to walk in that, to live out of that. In your name we pray, amen.